कृष्णा करुणा सिंधु दीनाबंधु जगतपथे गोपीशा गोपीका कंत राधाकंत नमुस्तुते तप्त कंचन गौरांगे राधे वृंदावनेश्वरी विश्वभानुसुते देवी प्रणमामि हरि प्रिये नाम चिंतामणि कृष्ण चैतन्य रस विग्रह पूर्ण शुद्ध नित्य मुक्त विनत्वं नाम नमिनो श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए हरिनाम प्रभु की जाए श्री श्री कृष्ण अर्जुन की जाए भगवत गीता की जाए और भक्तवृंद की जाए बहुत मेहमानंद सो लास्ट वीक वी ओपन द टेक्स्ट एंड डिस्कस्ड द फर्स्ट वर्स He also mentioned that I was not going to go through every one of the 700 verses, which could take us 700 lifetimes. We don't hope to stay around that long. So, I'm going to go through the text and pick out certain verses that are important, and uh, and that's an interesting thought. I remember once. Sitting in a class of my grammars was giving a discussion on the Gita, and he didn't have a, his assistant didn't bring his edition, so he asked if any of the assembled devotees had an edition. So one of his disciples offered his edition, so he took it and he looked him. That disciple had used a, a marker to highlight. Certain verses and that he wanted to remember. And my guru, of course, wasn't wasn't familiar with coming from India and being from several several generations apart. Whatnot, wasn't familiar with the concept of marking the text. So he thought, "What is this? He's, why he has crossed out this this verse?" <laughs> hmm? So it was explained to him, of course, quite humorous. But um, I ventured to put forth at the time. Eventually, all the verses will be crossed out, or they will all be marked, which was his point, of course. Also, they are all important, but um, they're important to us in a way that um, they're important to us in 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 different ways at different times in our progress. So, different verses will stand out like signposts telling. Telling us to go in this direction, look deeply here, and so in the beginning, certain verses may be more important, and in the end, others more important, and all important from many different angles of vision. So, when I say I'm going to pick out some of the important verses, that's kind of relative, relative to what I feel is important. But, but more than that, uh, in terms of how. Um, This particular commentary of mine on the Gita has been written, as I've explained to you. It's been written with, in consideration of where Krishna is, the speaker of the Gita at this time, on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, how he got there, where he was before, what point in his divine play, that is, he's here, and and by knowing more about the person of Krishna and the entirety of his lila, we can hopefully get a glimpse. Into some of the deeper implications of his speech. So, this is then viewing the Gita in a sense through the eyes of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, whom we are in my lineage the, the followers of. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, appeared about five centuries ago in West Bengal, <clears throat> and uh, was a very uh, veritable um, ocean of overflowing ocean of. Ecstatic love of God, singing the names of Krishna and falling and getting up and and singing. So many poets and thinkers and feelers and uh, transcendentalists came to surround him, and many many books were written about his what is the nature of the the phenomenon of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, like a great uh, waterfall. Cascading down the mountainside, we can stand in awe and wonder and appreciation of it from a distance, 
but uh, you can't get too close to it. Like Niagara Falls, you don't want to get too close, but it's beautiful. But uh, his followers, they took and made from the waterfall of his uh, ecstasy of uh, love of God a, a lake, so to speak, in the form of literature explaining the nature of his ecstasy and and uh, explaining it in relation to the entirety of the sacred literature. And they came to a very uh, extraordinary conclusion about the nature of this person's uh, appearance on earth and, and um, through their reasoning and spiritual feeling and again with support and reference from the, the books of evidence, if you will, that were accepted books of evidence at the time, the sacred texts, they demonstrated that he was himself Krishna, but in a, in a special mood. Krishna searching after the love of that Radha possesses for him. So we've talked about these things to some extent. And and so it is from that angle of vision, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's angle of vision, that we're discussing Bhagavad Gita. So, some verses that particularly bring out this uh, ecstatic vision of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with regard to Krishna, that is, that is again, viewing Krishna, who himself, if you will, through the eyes of Radha. And I think I mentioned this the last time, no one knows Krishna better than Radha, not even himself. So, some verses like that. And we're in the first chapter. First, first chapter, as I mentioned before, is, uh, has two names. One is Sanya Darshan Yoga, observing the armies. And the other is Bishadi um, Yoga, means yoga of despair. So in this, in this chapter, there's some history description of the different um, sides of the battle that's about to take place. And uh, there's some despair on the part of Arjuna. So after the first verse where we heard the want-to-be king, Dhritarashtra, really means want-to-be king, Dhritarashtra. He uh, was blind, blind physically and blind really. (laughs) In other words, you might not be blind, you might be blind physically but not really blind. There's a movie out now about Ray Charles, you might have seen it. It was nominated for some awards, so. He was physically blind but, uh, but he saw in ways that other people could not see. So that's even true materially. And then what to speak if if we speak about reality rather than just the physical existence, reality. In reality, it is consciousness that is the perceiver, not matter. So it's not our eyes that see or our ears that hear, but we are the hearer, we are the seer, we are the experiencer, and matter is that which is experienced course, as I mentioned before, when we lend our life to matter, it takes on a life, and sometimes we then misconstrue and think that, that, that matter really matters, and uh, we lose sight of our self, and this is uh, the basic material predicament that uh, we find ourselves in, to one extent or another. So, to see, really, is not dependent upon eyes, but to see really is to see uh, from the vantage point of the soul itself. To come out from underneath the limitations of eyes, ears, nose, sense of touch, so on, and mind also. So Dhritarashtra, he couldn't uh, see practically, and he was blind spiritually, and therefore he differentiated between uh, his son and the sons of Pandu, although he was involved in raising all of them. And he became blinded by what? By his material attachment that caused him to differentiate between I and mine, mine and yours, and and so forth. And so he wanted that his son would rule the kingdom because he could not rule the kingdom being blind, and he couldn't bear the fact that although his his younger brother was allowed to rule the kingdom, 
since he wasn't blind, when his younger brother died, he couldn't bear the fact that his younger brother's eldest son would now become the king. He thought, at least my son should become the king. And in that way, I'll also be the king through, through my extension of myself. But his son was not a really fit, in the highest sense of the term, to be the king. And so, as the battle is about to take place, and before that there was a lot of discussion in which they tried diplomacy, through diplomacy to um, avoid the, the, the war. Now it's, that's lost and it's about to take place. So Dhritarashtra asked Sanjaya, Sanjay means Sanjay, who's victorious. Jai, some over everything, means over the senses and over the mind. And he had a vision, he could see the battle, even though he was seated in the, in the palace. By the grace of Vyas, who's the legendary author of all the sacred texts of the Hindus, Sanjaya told that I, I, I have the ability to see without eyes and uh, mystically at a distance and so forth. So, Dhritarashtra asked him, what's happening? on the battlefield. What are my sons and the sons of Pandu about to do? What's, what's, what's up? Hmm? So, he relates in the second verse that Duryodhan, the son of Dhritarashtra, who Dhritarashtra, the blind king, wanted to become the king, he was speaking. Hmm? So Sanjaya relates, he's speaking and he's talking to his military guru, Drona, who taught him the arts of military well, the, the, the military science. It's called Danur Ved. The Ved, the knowledge of Danur, of uh, weaponry, military art. So he's talking to his teacher, and uh, he's trying to encourage the teacher that um, we're going to be victorious. And he says, look and see uh, all the people who are on my side. There's this one, there's that one, and so on, so, so on and so forth. And these are their qualities and 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 whatnot. And uh, he does it in such a way that is um, a little, it, it's apparent that he doesn't, um, that he's proud of himself, let us say. And uh, that he doesn't have really the kind of respect for his teacher that he should. He exemplifies in, in these texts what we call Guru Druha, who becomes a burden to the Guru only becomes a burden to, to his uh, or her teacher. Very unbecoming. So, as I say, in, in, in a number of ways, he's not really fit to be the, to be the king. After he discusses the, uh, lists some of the prominent members on his side, then he uh, speaks about some of the prominent members on the other side, as if to say it's going to be a good fight, but, you know, we're going to prevail here. Hmm? And uh, then after that, he, in a context of that, he mentions the great Bhishma, who's the grandfather of the whole kind of dynasty, in a, in a sense, and who Arjuna, Krishna's friend, and his brothers were, were personally cared for, raised, raised by. And by uh, circumstances, he happens to be on the other side. He's powerful, but he's on the other side. So... Duryodhan tells his Guru Drona and the rest of his uh, close assistants that we should, that we'll be valorous and we'll be victorious even because of Bhishma, the great uh, grandsire, is on our side. But he says it in such a way that it has uh, a double meaning. It also can be taken that we should be careful. We've got Bhishma on our side and he has a, he's a big fighter, but he has, his heart is with the Pandavas. He raised them like his own grandchildren. He was a brahmachari from birth. I mean, he never had a family or anything, so he was said to be very powerful on account of that austerity of, of a lifelong celibacy, which he volunteered for. It's a whole story why that happened and so forth, which is very uncommon for a warrior type of a person, if you will, you know, kind of a physical person. For a more cerebral uh, type of person, uh, a vow of celibacy might be more common. So he, he did this, and he was uh, considered very more fearsome <laughs> uh, physically uh, for that. At any rate, uh, his heart, as I say, 
Duryodhana knew was really with the Pandavas. So maybe he would compromise somehow in the battle. And so these kind of talks are going on, and then Bhishma blows his conch, as if to say, well, you know, a fight is a fight, and I'm a warrior by, by nature and by caste and so forth, so I'll do the best I can. And it was very uh, heartening that to all of the uh, members on Duryodhana's side. And then it's mentioned for the first time the name of Krishna. So Krishna has not been mentioned yet in the Gita. I want to speak a little bit about on the first verse in which Krishna is mentioned and how. Here it is said, Tatasveta hayar yukte mahati sandane stito maarava pandavas jaiva dibhyo shankyo pradadmatu so, Sanjaya relates that on the other side, the side of Arjun, the Pandavas, on the other side, Madhava and the son of Pandu, standing on a great swift chariot yoked to white horses, blew their divine conch shells. So you may know that uh, previous to the battle, Duryodhana and Arjun both went to Krishna's residence with a view to get him to fight on their side. And they arrived at the same time, coincidentally. Duryodhana was disappointed because he thought, I'll get there first and I'll ask Krishna. And Arjuna thought, I'll get there first and I'll ask Krishna. Duryodhana was a little more uh, motivated because he had a doubt that Krishna might fight on his side. Arjuna didn't have that much to worry about, but then again, they had arrived at the same time. So, what to do? They wanted both to speak to Krishna. They had a discussion, and Arjuna said, well, we'll go in together, and I'll sit at his feet. And Duryodhana was relieved. He said, oh, good, okay, good. And I'll sit at his head, and he was sleeping. So... Arjuna was happy as a natural devotee, thinking he sit at the feet of Krishna. And Duryodhana was very happy, thinking I'll sit at the head of Krishna. When he wakes up, of course, he's going to look at me first, and then I'll say, I'm going to do fight on my side. So, this is a kind of uh, material calculation, if you will, on the part of Duryodhana. Whereas Arjuna took more of a, a spiritual posture and thought, I, I put myself at the feet of, of Krishna. And in a serving disposition. Whatever he wants of me, then I'll accept that. So uh, they sat, one at the feet, Arjuna at the feet, and Duryodhana at the head, and Krishna awoke and looked at his feet first. <laughs> Arjuna asked that you be on my side. And Krishna said, yes, uh, yes, but then he looked and said, but Duryodhana is also here. So I have to give something to Duryodhana also. So Duryodhana got to ask what he wanted. He didn't really want Krishna on his side, actually. He wouldn't have minded, but what he wanted was Krishna's armies on his side. Because at this point in Krishna's Leela, Krishna is a prince. He left the uh, pasturing grounds of the cows and the village where he lived and uh, has, has come to the big city and, and he has become actually a prince and, and well-known everywhere and, and uh, so on. And so he had many, many armies and, and whatnot. And, and so uh, uh, Duryodhana wanted his armies. Thinking, well, Krishna is one person, but his armies are vast. I'll ask for his armies. And of course he thought, well, Krishna would come with his armies too. But Krishna had promised himself to Arjuna. So he wanted to satisfy Duryodhana. So he said, you can have my armies. So Duryodhana was very happy. And Arjuna was very happy. This way, Krishna has a way of pleasing everyone. <laughs> As we approach him, so then he reciprocates accordingly, is the idea. So all the armies, even, of Krishna, he gave to the, the uh, Duryodhana. So Arjuna and company were greatly uh, outnumbered. But they had Krishna on their side. But Krishna had agreed, however, not to fight in the battle at all. He would not raise uh, a weapon, do any fighting. So Duryodhana was especially satisfied then by this. That, so what is he going to do? So he said he would join Arjuna by doing what? By driving his chariot. Arjuna would be the war warrior 
and Krishna would drive the chariot. This is called Parthasarati. Krishna's names describe him in different uh, in the context of his lila. So Partha means Arjun, means the son of Prithu. Prita. So, so it means the, the driver of Arjun's chariot. So, here it's described the first time now that Krishna's name has been mentioned. He's been called here by. Sanjay Madhava. He says that Madhava, Pandavas, Jaiva, both Madhava and the, the son of Pandu, which is Arjun, seated on a chariot drawn by white horses, they blew their divine conch shells. So um, the other conch shells were blown, and these conch shells were blown, and, and there's an adjective that qualifies the two. One were mon- one, the first were mundane, and these were had divine uh, power behind them. There's a whole story, Leela, how Krishna got his conch shell, but I won't go into that. But at any rate, here, what's significant, besides the, the, the heralding of the, the blowing of the conch shells and, uh, and how it heartened the pious and so forth, is the fact that, what, that Krishna's uh, one is, is seated on the chariot. He's going to drive the chariot of Arjun. And I want to go into that in a little more depth. But before we... I do that, it's worth mentioning that here the name by which Krishna is addressed first in the Gita is Madhava. Madhava. Madhava means springtime. So it is the season of love, romance, spring. Madhava. And um, it means um, and 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 mad, madhu means honey, so it's, it's a very sweet name. It's about spring. It's about honey. About sweetness. And madhava, ma means also ma means Lakshmi. Lakshmi means uh, Lakshmi is means a goddess of fortune. Everybody wants Lakshmi, money, but madhava, dhava means. Here, husband. So, Madhava means the husband of the goddess of fortune. The implication is what? That another name for Lakshmi is Chanchala, means fickle. So, fortune is very fickle. She never stays with anyone for too long. Everyone's chasing after fortune, but she never stays with anyone for too long. But, with the exception of her husband. She's always with him. So you cannot find uh, Lakshmi, uh, uh, Ma, Lakshmi, without her husband. So the implication is that real wealth comes not from seeking fortune, but from seeking the husband of the goddess of fortune. She will always be there with you. She will always bless you. By seeking Krishna, in other words, real good fortune comes in a lasting way, a fortune that is lasting and enduring. It means the wealth of the soul becomes our possession. But there's another question that uh, may arise here. Krishna is addressed here as Madhava. Madhava means, again, the husband of the goddess of fortune. So, what is the husband of the goddess of fortune doing with Radha? Of course, Radha is not right here, but we've heard that Krishna has a romantic uh, relationship with Radha, so he's the husband of the goddess of fortune. So, this is peculiar. How can the husband of goddess of fortune be with another lady? And as the husband of the goddess of fortune, the two are epitomizing the ideal kind of relationship of uh, I mean, a, a meaningful, lasting committed relationship. There's so much value in a committed relationship. Uh, so much more to, uh, to, so much growth is possible in a, in a committed relationship. Because commitment means that you have to sacrifice to live with one another. You, a man and woman, or as may be the case, there are many different types of relationships, then uh, in, a, in any event, one has to sacrifice, one has to give. And by giving, one grows. So, I mean, I live as a hermit. 
uh, celibate life, but I advocate the uh, committed relationships. There's a saying, a Bengali saying, Grihe thako, bone thako, sada hari bole dhako. It means, Grihe thako. Thako means to live. So, griha means home. Whether you live in the home, Grihe thako, bone thako. Bone means forest. So, whether you live in the, in the home or in the forest, it means whether you're a, a, a family person or a monk. monk. Grihe thako, bone thako, sada hori bole dhako. says, it doesn't matter. A lot of people in my lineage, they like to say this. Grihe thako, bone thako. But there's a second part to it. To it. <laughs> Why it doesn't matter? It does matter, but if it, it doesn't matter if sada hari bole dhako. If one is always chanting the name of Hari, of Krishna. In other words, if, one's, if his situation or her situation, married or renounced is one that fosters spiritual practice. And this is the center of that. that that's, what it's, that's what it's really centered on. Sada Hari always always chant the name of Hari. So this is our spiritual practice, Mahaprabhu's practice, or singing the names of God. We sing in like we do japa, you know japa, japa, mala, like a mala, like a rosary. Two, four, six, eight hours a day, depending. Half hour a day. It depends on uh, one situation. But uh, we do japa and we do and we do singing with instruments, chanting, and uh, all life of singing. So anyway, the point is, if your life is centered on spiritual practice, and it, particularly it's highlighting this practice because, as I mentioned before, this practice that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has given is very user friendly. Therefore, it can it can in many disciplines. In Gyanmarg, Gyanmarg means the path of knowledge. It's understood in order for Gyan, knowledge, to come in the heart, it must be pure. When the heart is pure, then Gyan will will manifest. So if you're on the path of Gyan, well, you've got to have a pure heart, or you've got to purify your heart to get to the path of Gyan. There's a prerequisite in the true sense of the path. But bhakti is not like that. Bhakti means devotion. It is said a really nice thing. Vrajavadu bhargena bhakopitaha idam cha vishnu shadhanvita nushnayad atavarnayadya bhaktim param pratilabja kamam hridroga mashpapahinoti achirena dhira. It said, very interesting, if one who has had faith in Krishna Bhakti, aroused in his heart by hearing from a sadhu, from someone who has a pure heart, if that faith is awakened, then with that faith, if one hears about the Brajavadu, Brajavadu means the wives of Braj. Now, the Braj means, Braja means the village, Krishna's village. And in that village, there are many young girls. They're girls, just but they they're they're betrothed or married at an early, their marriage is fixed by astrological calculation and so forth and and so on. This is the ancient system, of course. So and these are the girls that are running off in the forest at night to meet with Krishna. Again, we're talking about how is it that the husband of the goddess of fortune, who exemplifies the ideal married life is running off with, with Radha. This is a very esoteric uh, concept, but this is Leela. So this verse is saying that if you hear about the love affairs of Krishna and the gopis, the milkmaidens, which on its face doesn't look like something spiritual people should be hearing about. It says the name of Krishna given in that verse is Vishnu. It means to say, remember, he's God. Vishnu means all-pervasive. If you hear about the all-pervasive absolute's relationship with these milkmaids, what'll happen? Bhakti param parilabdhukamam. Bhakti will come in your heart. Devotion for him will come in your heart. Devotion for Radha and Krishna will come in your heart. And what will happen? It doesn't say, first clean your heart, 
then hear about these things. It says, hear these things. Your heart will be cleansed and bhakti will come in there. Bhakti will come in it, excuse me, bhakti will come in and cleanse the heart. And what is the problem in the heart? Hridrogam, hridrogam, rogam. Rogam means disease and hridu means heart. The disease of the heart will be cleansed. And what is the disease of the heart? That is lust. That is that, that unbridled, uh, it's an uncomfortable, undesirable condition. This, a, a very dissatisfied, unhappy condition. So I'm going to say, well, what's wrong with lust? It's unbecoming and it's, it's not a happy condition. So this lust means, you know, we, we could take it sexually, of course, which is the main implication of lust, but we're lusting after whatever, all kind of things, because we are addicted uh, to, to, we are identified with the body and the body has senses and the senses are attracted to objects that correspond with them, objects of smell and sight and hearing and so forth. And, and so we want them and so we are going here and there after them and remaining unfulfilled. So this roga, this disease of lust, my Shikshu Guru, he once was uh, serving in, in South India and he went to the king to get a donation to build a temple. And so the king dis- dispatched his secretary and said, there's some sadhus at the door and they want something, go and see what they want. So this was, of course, a long time ago when there were kings in India. And um, he said, uh, well, we, we came, we want to open a temple here for Radha and Krishna and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And so this, this treasurer, secretary, and the king said, all right, well, we'll put you on the list for donations. Thank you very much. And so some time passed, and no donation was coming, and so forth. So then they went back. And they said, you know, we, we came, we asked the donation, we want to build a temple here. And uh, he said, yes, well, we, you know, we, we put you on the list. And he said, well, where is our name on the list? Well, he said, the thing is, we have many important projects to do here. You know, we've got hungry people. We need a new hospital. We need this, that, and listed so many things which were a priority to building the temple. So, my Gurmarsh at that point, he thought, well, I've got nothing to lose now. When you go and you preach to these people and you ask for some donation, you, you know, you don't tell them the whole thing. You just kind of try to encourage them and say, you know, we're sadhus, we want to build a temple, give a donation. And you don't tell them, your whole life, your whole kingdom is a waste of time. <laughs> and it's meaningless. You're, you're actually, a, you're, you're actually a, we're actually coming to give you something. <laughs> you know, you don't tell them all that. You just ask them for a donation and then that'll be good for them and then they'll get some piety and, and then maybe later on they'll be able to hear a little bit more. After, after all, a king is uh, typically a very worldly person. Very wealthy and you know, an enjoyer and so forth. So at this point, Gurudev uh, thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. I might as well tell them the whole story. They got us at the bottom of the list. <laughs> so he quoted this verse that I quoted. Hmm? He said, he quoted this verse, then he explained it like this. He said, there are elephants and they eat about 500 pounds of food a day. This is how he explained the verse. So if you feed an elephant 500 pounds one day, the next day he'll want another 500 pounds, the next day another 500 pounds. Do you think fee- feeding the hungry will ever stop hunger? And he went on like this with so many types of examples. Point is, no. Hunger will hunger. What is hunger? And any other malady, problem of human society, these are all symptoms of one disease, and that disease is this, this calm, this, this rogue, this, this disease of, of uh, lust, which is born of, of material attachment. When we get attached to something, then we lust after that, and here we are chasing it. Hunger is, is not really a stomach problem. If it was, when you put food in the stomach, it would be finished. But it comes again and again. It's, it's a problem that arises from identifying with matter, which has in a particular form, has needs that aren't the needs of the self, but the self is identified with that form, and so it thinks it has needs, and so it strives to meet them, and so forth. So he told them like this. He basically told them, you're wasting your whole life. Hmm? That's what I really came here to tell you. You're wasting your whole life. 
And he, t- he told him such a powerful way that the guy just put him at the top of the list. Hmm? Donated the money and they opened the temple. He said, we're here to open a temple. You think we're here just to open a temple to ring some bells or something like that so some people can come and have a religious ceremony. And we're here to open a temple to tell you to close down your whole kingdom. Hmm? But it will be closed by time anyway. It will not endure. It's not going to last. There's something more important. It's you. You are lasting. You are enduring. And we want to talk to you. Not to your crown and your appearance and all these things. To you. About you. This is Madhava's message. Very interesting. As I said, it's very user-friendly, this bhakti. You can be a household person with children and all of that that, 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 that involves and sing the names of Krishna, Govinda, Radha. It's very easy to do. As I said, with regard to sitting, you don't have to sit in a particular posture. In fact, dancing is often the norm when chanting. Very user-friendly. Bhakti is very is completely independent. She will go wherever she wants. Knowledge and detachment, which are valuable things, they follow her like maidservants who, who have bhakti. Knowledge and, and detachment will follow them naturally. Her, him or her naturally. We are a unit of dedication. That's what we are. We are dedicating ourselves always. The function, the dharma, the jaiva dharma, the, the dharma of the self is to dedicate itself. What is the dharma of the self? It is uh, really to serve. We are serving always. Whether we realize it or not, we, we think we're enjoying, but we're really serving our mind's demands, serving the demands of the senses. What are the mind's demands and the demands of the senses? They are manifestations of material nature. What is material nature? This is one manifestation of, of God, like the backside of God. So we're serving in the shadows, but we're thinking we're, we're, we're the enjoyer. We're opposed to the idea of service. It said, rather to reign in hell than serve in heaven. <laughs> we're kind of like that. <laughs> opposed to the idea. But in reality, serving all the time. Slaves of our minds, demands. In fact, it's very uncomfortable because the nose is taking us this way, the ears may take us that way. The belly may take us to Govindas. And then when we eat, the belly may say, no, enough. The tongue may say, I want more. So there's a conflict between the different urges of the senses and so forth. And we're being torn in so many different directions. And serve them. And what will you get? Nothing. Nothing. They just, they'll never be satisfied. It's like pouring fuel on a fire. They'll never be satisfied. And we, we, we're against the idea of slavery. But we don't know that we are slaves of our own minds, demands, and senses. And talking about it in a sophisticated way as if it sounds like it's something more than that. But the bottom line, this is what it is. And so, if we have to serve, then why not serve in a way that brings dignity to the self? This is the idea. So bhakti is about this. It's about the nature of the self. It's not, you see, it's not adding anything on. It's not even adding knowledge on or practicing detachment. These things come naturally as bhakti comes in the heart. As when bhakti means that we take ourself, a unit of serving tendency, we are giving ourselves always somewhere to something, and give it in a place. What place? Give it to the center. The proper center. Then, because the, the, the resultant effect of that is that because one is giving oneself to the proper center, what oneself is comes into view. When we give it to another place, to some manifestation of matter, we lose sight of what, what we are. The unit of consciousness, the unit of will, and so when we give it to the right place, ah, then knowledge comes automatically. And when knowledge comes, what comes with it? Detachment. Why? Because when we have knowledge, then we don't chase after things that don't endure in the pursuit of enduring happiness. When we don't have knowledge, we chase after enduring happiness, which is what we all want, in relation to things that don't endure. That doesn't make a lot of sense, and neither do most do our lives to a large extent, unfortunately, <laughs> in the bigger picture. 
So, knowledge and detachment, these are paths in and of themselves. Tyagis, you know, have you seen guys that stand on one foot for you know, a long time, or on nails, laying a bed of nails, all kind of things going on, in India anyway, like this. Tyagis and Gyanis, Gyanis mean the path of studying, gathering knowledge and so forth. So bhakti is very different, it's very simple. And it almost appears to be, it's like too simple to be, could it really be spiritual like that? I mean, just singing and dancing, and they're not fasting either. They're eating at Govindas, and it's good. It's, <laughs> you see, it's very user-friendly. And they don't have to give up their families even, unless someone's predisposed towards that psychologically and can be, can be useful to the community from uh, that vantage point. And, and children can do it. Vegetables can do it. Like we grow vegetables, we grow. We have all our organic gardens at our monastery, and then we offer them all to Krishna. They're grown just for the purpose of being offered. We consider them higher than ourselves. And the cows, we worship them. They need milk, we offer to Krishna. We know the vegetables, the trees, that they're not going anywhere. We might leave, we might get distracted. <laughs> they're permanent members. We establish the deity of Krishna there, in, in, within the realm of ritual, like I talked about the other night. And then the whole thing is centered around the deity, the whole life, growing, milking, building, writing, speaking, whatever it may be, shopping. We have to shop <laughs> for, for the deity. We have to shop for Krishna. You can shop in the Gyanmarg, <laughs> really, and be. You can't go shopping. In the, in, the, in the path of a tyagi, of a, of a, uh, just a tyagi means uh, the path of uh, just pure renunciation. You see, two things are there. Material life runs on two tracks. Enjoying, we call bog and tyag, giving it up. You enjoy a thing, and then uh, you get tired of it. You give it up. But because you don't have complete knowledge, you go back to the thing. And enjoy it again, and then you give it up. Bog and tiag, bog and tiag. One sector wants to enjoy the world, exploit it. One wants, having been frustrated by it, give it up. The motive for enjoying it and the motive of frustration for renouncing it, these are both unnatural to the soul. Soul is, is a serving unit. It's one thing to exploit the world is like war. Hmm? to fight, to compete and fight. Now, if, if in the course of war we find this troublesome, so then we decide to make a truce. So truce is to stop fighting, right? So, so the war is like bog, like trying to enjoy and exploit the world. And the truce is like tiag, like renouncing. But you see, these are just polar opposites. And neither one constitutes a real wholesome life. Just to have a truce that's not everything. You have to have peaceful interaction, commerce, and so forth. If there's a problem at the company, in the factory, the employees are being cheated, they go on strike, right? They renounce, we'll not work. But strike is not everything, right? That has to stop at some point also. So one sector wants to enjoy the world, one wants to renounce the world. In bhakti, we're not interested in either. We will enjoy as much as is necessary for serving Krishna and we will renounce as much as is favorable for serving Krishna. The whole idea is dedication, that's all. Devotion. If it is a festival day and we offer a nice feast to Krishna, then we will enjoy it after offering it to him. If it's a day for fasting, then we will fast. And in either case, the central focus, why fasting, why feasting? Not for the sake of feasting and gratifying the tongue, not for the sake of fasting and, and accomplishing something independently by that. But both are just um, uh, expressions of devotion. So both of these, like two streams from the Himalaya, if they flow, they're weak. They'll never reach the Bay of Bengal, but if they contact the Ganga at some point, then they'll go there. Bhakti is like the Ganga. Hmm? It will go from the top Gongotri, the glacier, all the way down to the Bay of Bengal. 
And if any other minor tributaries enter there, they will be harmonized and have meaning. Knowledge in itself has little value. Renunciation has little value. Enjoyment, material enjoyment, less. So bhakti, it is natural. It is user-friendly. This is the idea. So Radha and Madhava. Let's say, I should say, Narayan and Lakshmi. Vishnu and Lakshmi. The ideal couple. Madhava means the husband of goddess of fortune. So we should go for the husband and then the goddess will be there automatically. This will be real fortune, real wealth, as I say. But the question is, relative to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's vision, what is the husband of the goddess of fortune doing with Radha? When Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was in South India traveling as a mendicant, he stopped in, a, in the Sri Rangam temple, which is a very big temple of a, of a, a lineage of Vaishnavas who worshipped Lakshmi and Narayan. Narayan is the four-handed form of, of God, and Lakshmi is the goddess, the goddess, the goddess of fortune. So he said, Mahaprabhu Chaitanya Dev said to the head priest there, he said, he was staying there for four months during the rainy season, and he said, you have such nice devotion for Lakshmi and Narayan, but I have a question for you. My question is, it's said in the scripture that at some point Lakshmi wanted to enter, enter into a love dance with Krishna, but she's the wife of the goddess of, of Narayan, so what's that all about? So the head priest said, well, you're very funny, but uh, there's no problem, because Narayan and Krishna, there's really no difference. Krishna is an incarnation of Narayan, and they're both uh, the same, really. It's just like if there's a man named George Bush, let's say, he, so many people know him as Mr. President, and he looks a particular way, and you only see him in certain postures and so forth. And, and some people know Mr. President as, as Mr. Bush. Some people know him as George. And what's his wife's name? Laura, is it? Yeah. Who knows what she calls him? And how she sees him. See, so he's the same person, but according to who's looking at him, he appears slightly different. According to the relationship he has with people, he appears differently. So God is like this. He has many devotees. So according to the devotion, then he appears in a particular way. Not I and with four hands, that engenders respect, reverence, and awe. A Krishna with two hands engenders intimacy and human-like relationship. So the head priest said, well, anyway, there's no difference really. They're both God, it's just different manifestations. So there's no fault on the goddess's part. It's the same person. But then Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, that's very good, I like that answer. But I have another question. Why she wasn't able to do that? She wanted to go with Krishna on a tryst with Krishna, but she, she wasn't able to. So then that fellow said, that only the person who could ask this question could know the answer. I, I, he must be Krishna himself. What kind of question is that? It's a deep theological question, actually. The answer came is because from Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, there's a method to do that. There's a kind of practice that if you want to associate with Godhead in intimacy, which the Krishna manifestation of Godhead affords, then there's a method to do that. There's a way to do that. That is called rag bhakti. Rag. Rag means the path of love, the path of attachment, the path that engenders uh, intimacy. It's, it's said that the, the qualification for treading it is is greed. It's a very interesting concept. Uh, it's greed. What does greed do? When you are greedy, let's say you're in a public setting and you do something greedy, like you know, you, you grab the last thing off the plate or something like that, and everybody hasn't eaten, and you know, you're taking thirds or something like. That. It's embarrassing. It's unbecoming. Do you follow? Greed causes us to do things that are unbecoming. So this term has been used, it's very interesting, in relation to Krishna. The bhakti, greed, to uh, uh, associate with, have a relationship with God in a particular way that is it's unbecoming. In other words, the devotees of Krishna, in perfect love of Krishna, they're not holding their hands and bowing before him. Radha's pushing him over. He's friend, he has relationship with devotees in Leela as friends. 
They may wrestle him to the ground and win. And he may have to carry them on his shoulders as, as a result of losing. This is this very interesting idea. When people who are worshippers of Lakshmi and that four-handed Narayan, they hear about this, they're a little embarrassed. I was once in South India. We were with a very nice devotee of Lakshmi Narayan. They have reverential love for God. And we call it an intimate love for God. So we were sitting and we were taking a meal at his house. And um, we were talking about Krishna. He was very happy and jolly. And so my friend said, so-and-so, you know, whenever we talk about Krishna, you become very jolly and happy. He said, yes, 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 Krishna is very sweet. And then my friend said, but when we talk about Narayan, and before he could say anything else, the man said, that is another thing. He became like so sober. I was so much appreciative. Oh, just see the nature of his love. He has this kind of, he appreciates Krishna, that manifestation of Godhead, but the love in his heart that is awakened, the kind of love that's awakened in his heart is reverential love, and this is, this is what really, really makes him tick. That's another thing. He folds his hand and quiet. You see, so, what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advocated is that he kind of like, if Chaitanya Mahaprabhu we see as Krishna, as I said, coming in the mood of Radha, pursuing Radha's view of himself and all that, that means and this opens the, the door the gates to like the private life of God that's kind of like secret and and for good reasons it's difficult to understand it's you don't deal with God like that when you think of God you don't think it's God and I'm, and I'm going to just and I'm going to say this verse is coming I said, Krishna sitting on the, sitting on the chariot, right? What is he doing there? He's God. And Krishna says, Arjuna says, taxi, like that. Krishna, says uh, Krishna, you know, drive the chariot. Come on, go. I want you to draw it up between the two armies and I want to take a look to see who's here, who's assembled, who's going to fight, what, what's going on on the battlefield. Go! So this is not how you typically would think of talking to God. This verse is the essence of the whole Gita. Achyuta, he calls him. Achyuta means infallible. It means, you're the infallible God, but anyway, drive my chariot up here, will you? So this is very... Uh, extraordinary theological uh, idea. We have a sense that we might want to have intimate relationship with God, but here the doors for that have been opened. This is a verse that people will pass by, many readers of the Gita, but okay, Krishna's going to take the chair and see. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, when he was in South India, he met another fellow. And this fellow was holding Bhagavad Gita and going through the pages like this and weeping. And children were throwing stones at him and sticks and calling him names and, and so forth. And he was kind of like a, you know, like a bag man or a bag lady type of a, you know, he was like disheveled and, and so forth. So Mahaprabhu Shichitana Devi stopped him and said, why are you uh, crying? He said, my guru asked me to read 18 chapters of the Gita every day. But I'm illiterate. I cannot read or write. So I hold the book. And I just go through the pages. And every time I go through the pages, all that comes to my mind and appears in my heart is the fact that, that Bhagwan means God. Krishna is driving the chariot. He's the chauffeur of his devotee. How, what, what's going on here? This is, God has become the chauffeur of his, everyone's business is to serve God. And God is, is serving the devotee. He's overwhelmed, overcome, taken off his throne, taken down by the force of that kind of love, and affords then, uh, which affords the kind of intimacy. So every time I see this, I cry. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, "You are the true knower of the meaning of Bhagavad Gita. You have understood the true, the real meaning of Bhagavad Gita. This is the essence of the Gita. Such that such thing is possible, and there's a way to do that." There's a path to the extreme. To do that to the extreme, this is the, this is the pastoral leela of Krishna, to enter into such a relationship with God that he becomes even more subordinate than he is to Arjun as Arjun's chariot driver by the power of, of love. So, 
unconditional love. And Mahaprabhu told that priest in the temple who he was having that discussion with that how come Lakshmi couldn't go with Krishna? She wanted to, but she wasn't able to enter the rasa, the dance, the circular love dance of Krishna with the milkmaidens at the moonlight harvest moon. Why she couldn't enter there? And he answered for himself. He said, because she has not taken the method. She has not taken this rag bhakti. She is, exemplifies the goddess in the path of bhakti that is um, encumbered by rules and regulations and engenders reverential love. She epitomizes that. Actually, what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu explained to him then is because there is greater possibility of intimacy in love with the Krishna manifestation of Godhead as opposed to Narayan. Narayan you can revere, but Krishna, there is greater potential for loving exchange. I mean, love will be valued on a scale of uh, reciprocation. However much reciprocation takes place, then we'll grade the love. So the possibility of reciprocal dealings with God in the in the expression, in the form of Krishna, are are tremendous uh, in comparison to that which is possible in relation to Narayan. So I said, on this basis, therefore, it should be understood that Narayan, that Krishna is the source of Narayan, but not that Krishna is a, is a, a particular manifestation of Narayan, but Narayan is the particular face of Krishna. Krishna is the full face of Godhead, the heart of Godhead, and similarly, Radha is the full face of the goddess. As Krishna, there is no Krishna without Radha. So, really. So, wherever Krishna manifests a different face, like I said, the president may show one face or another relative to whom he's with, some expression of Radha is also with him. So when he shows his four-handed form as Narayan, Radha comes as Lakshmi. So, no problem. Lakshmi wanted to go. She couldn't go in that form. But the way to go is to follow in the love of Radha. This is the end. This is the, really the high point in one sense. There are many high points of the Gita, but this is like, in the very first chapter, it really in a, it says to us, this is the furthest reach of the text. It tells us that it's possible to, to develop love of God to the extent, to the measure, that God becomes subordinate to the devotee's love and thus a, a realm of intimate dealings in eternality, in eternity um, becomes accessible. Otherwise, not accessible. Krishna has come, as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, pursuing the mood of Radha, and in the madness of doing that, he's opened the, the door to the whole affair. This is the secret, private life of God, that God arranges for people to misunderstand practically, if there's any news about it. It's written he, about here and there in the scriptures, but what it's really all about is not very well understood. But when, when he himself comes, Krishna, as Chaitanya, in the mood of Radha, then the whole, uh, the whole thing gets explained. So this is really like news to the religious world, such a realm uh, of, of intimacy and, and transcendent love exists, is accessible, and there's a way to go there. And so. The whole path has, has come out of this. Now, while we're at the high point in one sense of this idea, so beautifully the Gita takes us from that high point, which is a little difficult to understand as they're higher theological kind of concepts. It takes us immediately to the very beginning and tells us, if you want to understand the love of Radha and Madhava, this kind of intimate love into there, there's a way to go there, and it begins with this. So... After Arjuna asks Krishna, take the chariot, drive it up, let me see who's, who's here. We'll discuss the implications of this. Then, in the following verse, what happens? Krishna brings the chariot between the two armies, and he speaks for the first time in the Gita. And he says, Krishikesh, he's addressed here by by this name is Sanjaya. Hrishikesha means the master of the senses. So we're supposed to get it straight, like he's driving the chariot of Arjuna, but actually he's like God, the master of the mind, the senses, and so So Rishikesh, having been ordered by Gudakesh, Guda, Guda means sleep, 
So Vidakesha is the name for Arjuna, means who conquered sleep, but Krishna is putting him to sleep here so that the Gita can be spoken. In other words, what we're going to find that follows this is Arjuna becomes overwhelmed by material attachment because Krishna drives the chariot up between the two armies and he stops in front of Bhishma, that grandfather, the great bowman who was a celibate, who had raised Arjuna from his childhood, was very dear to Arjuna. He stops the chariot in front of Bhishma and Drona, who was also the, the teacher, the military teacher of, of Arjuna, so a kind of a guru to him. These are his biggest attachments, these two, and they're on the other side. Krishna says, well, look here. I'm drawing the chariot up. And look, look, see, look at all the kurus who are assembled here. He, he, he says, these are all kurus. It means they're all in the same family. These are all your relatives. By the way, let's stop right here, right in front of the two who are your biggest attachments. So much of your sense of identity is drawn from attachment to these two people. And what Krishna is saying to Arjuna, without saying anything, really, he just says, look and see all, all of your family members assembled here. Just by moving the chariot, what he's done is he's telling Arjuna and he's telling us, if you want, if people really want to understand me in the highest way possible and associate with me in intimacy of ecstasy, in love, with such love that it, the power, the force of that love, and you can imagine the joy that comes from having such love, that it can actually dethrone God. This is considerable measure of love and joy. If you want that, you have to start here. What is that? By dismantling your attachments to those things that don't foster that love. So very beautifully the Gita goes to the high point and says, here's your potential. This is this is possible. And now here's where you are, right down here. And so you have to deal with this right down here rather than go there. Because I can sit here and I can speak sometimes very nicely and very poetically about the highest ideals. And you can think, oh, that sounds so sweet. And you can take a note, and that was very beautiful. Wow, and it's very nice. And then, but then if I start talking about how to go there, you might think, well, it's time to go. I've got something else to do. That doesn't sound as pleasant. <laughs> so, but we need to hear both. And then we need to hear the goal, the ideal, and get inspiration, how high we can go, what possibility there is. But we also have to be equally interested in hearing what it means to go. It's high. It's happy. It's high. And we're low, and we're not that happy <laughs> because of it. And we have to recognize that and, and not be discouraged. That's prospect we have. We may wonder, is there really any happiness in life? Is, is there any ultimate happiness? The good news of the Gita is yes, and it goes so high, such possibility. But following that, it says, but, but to go there, you have to do some work. That's not an unreasonable. That's very reasonable. And as we do that work, then we find that the, the work actually becomes, eventually, a labor of love, which means no labor at all. And that's much about arriving there. So the beginning of this is, is at least to identify I'm attached, that means I'm pursuing enduring happiness, but I'm attached to something, someone, something that is getting in my way. Now there's a way to or to, to, to deal with that, of course, without just, okay, I'll leave my wife tonight. So I'll run off and leave my, you know, it's not about that. As I said earlier, no, grihe tako bane tako, sadahari bole tako. You can do this in any situation. You can turn your attachments through bhakti into something favorable that help you. Hmm? So again, it's very, it's a very user, user-friendly path. But we need good guidance for all of this. This, this is a, you know, this is a long, uh, long journey, much to sort out. I'm just giving some, some uh, th- theory here. On the one end, we're attached, and in in ways we get security from that, and. Uh, emotional fulfillment from that, and and it it satisfies to some extent, but it ultimately it it gets in the way of really becoming fulfilled and really fully satisfied and so forth. So how to deal with the attachments in such a way that they become 
they're turned into favorable circumstances and, and they foster my bhakti and so forth. This is, this is the whole idea. So, what we'll follow, I'm going to stop here because we talked a while, but what we'll follow, of course, is Arjun faced with his attachments, which he has to slay, starts to rationalize why it's, you know, maybe this isn't really all necessary. <laughs> it doesn't look like a good thing, uh, and so forth. And we'll hear about that the next time we discuss and, and how, how, if we're not careful, we can rationalize our way out of uh, a genuine spiritual culture and just imagine ourselves into spirituality. Like I said earlier, I can say something beautiful about the ideal and so forth, and then you can just keep it in your head and you can go around and say it here and there and so forth, but it doesn't mean you've really gone anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's easy to do. But um, to be really happy in the full sense, uh, we'll, it won't be easy. It won't be hard, but it won't be easy. We have to make some effort. <laughs>